Lord God, we pray that you help us to understand King Saul and help us to understand you and um, our relationship with you and why you're um, the Lord of Lords, why you're so amazing and why we need you so desperately. Amen. One of the earliest, most significant events that happens in the Bible is um, in Genesis, and it's the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And he, he talks to, to Abraham and he makes this agreement. You can read about it in Genesis 12 and 15. And he says that through you, I will um, bless the nations. The nations will be blessed through you, um, Abraham. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And it becomes a foundation for all the hope of Israel. And throughout the history, um, the Hebrew people, they go on and they experience great blessing, but they also experience suffering. They become slaves at one point. They're freed from slavery. They, they you know, have great prophets come to them, sent from God. And um, throughout all this time, they hold on to this promise that God makes with Abraham. And uh, they always ask the question, how is this being fulfilled now? What is God doing? How, how is the promise that he made with Abraham being fulfilled by God? And for many centuries, Israel saw Yahweh as their king. They were an alternative to the other nations around them who, who had men with crowns on the head as kings. Um, Israel was different in this respect. It was like a subversive kind of kingship. The true king of the universe they had. But if you read the Old Testament chronologically, um, once you get to the time of the judges, after, after the time of Moses and into the time of the judges, before there's an actual monarchy in Israel, you see that they're in a complete mess. There was a shaky, unstable, tribal mode of life that they had. They were dabbling with idolatry. Sometimes they were fully reveling in it. They were blending their religion with other religions and they were politically and socially barbaric. So things weren't going so well. That's then. Now, if you fast forward a few hundred years after that, then you get to this other period in Israel's history where they looked completely different. We're talking about skipping over the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. If you jump to the book of 1 and 2 Kings you see completely different people. Um, they'd become an economic monopoly. They had a strong theology of monarchy. Uh, they had centralised power, and that centralised power controlled the people and even oppressed people. They promoted many injustices in, in, in some of the cases of the kings. So you go from this... <laughs> amorphous, tribal, messed up Israel to this centralised, kingly, economic, monopoly Israel. And in the middle, you have the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, the transition period between those two types of um, cultures. And 1 and 2 Samuel tells us about how this came about, why this came about. Now, one of the forces at play that caused this change were the Philistines. Uh, they were the great enemies of Israel at that period. And we see the rise of God's prophet Samuel at the start of 1 Samuel. 
and he successfully helps him to get right with God and repent of their sins and have God on their side um, so that they can be delivered from the attack of the Philistines. You can read about that, for example, an example of that in 1 Samuel 7. But then eventually this prophet, Samuel, becomes an old man and the elders of Israel are really worried. What's going to happen next? We've got these Philistines on our back and the prophet Samuel's getting older and he's going to die soon and his sons are hopeless cause. They're not going to take over. So they demand a king. And Samuel, the prophet, becomes angry. And, and God points out to Samuel, he's not rejecting you, Samuel. They're not rejecting you as their prophet. They're rejecting me because I'm their king. So anyway, Samuel goes back to the elders of, of Israel and, and he says, look, if, you, if you're going to have a king, you don't need one, but if you're going to have one, you've got to need to know what it's going to be like. I mean, do you really want someone who's going to tax you and, and take away your land and make your young men and women go out and serve serve and be on the front lines of the military. Do you really want that? He will take you and use you for his own purposes. But they looked around at the nations around them and instead of wanting to be this subversive tribal you know, group, they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a king to take them out and fight their battles for them. Well, you should always be careful what you pray for because sometimes God gives you what you ask for even if God doesn't think it's a good thing. And this is what he did. They wanted a great military leader, and so God found for them Saul, one who was a foot taller than everyone else. He was the people's pick. He was uh, you know, the, the Malcolm Turnbull of... No, that's not a piece of So Samuel anointed Saul with oil, and, and God you know, gave him um, the authority to be king, and he went on to lead the Israelites into victory against the Philistines. And initially, Saul emerges as the great king of Israel. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 11, uh, where he leads the rescue of the city of Jabesh, the slaughtering of the Philistines. Yes, we've finally got our king, says Israel. And they're filled with great excitement. As far as they're concerned, God really was true to his covenant with Abraham because when the Philistines are threatening us, now we can stand up against them and go on and fulfil that covenant to bless the nations. Then the prophet Samuel, in his old age, he speaks to Israel, and you can read about this in 1 Samuel 12, and he, he just goes back and reminds them, God's always been faithful to you guys. Don't, don't sort of start questioning God now. He's always looked after you. And, and there was an awareness that Israel had that they'd, added to their own sins by asking for this king. They were, they were kind of aware enough of this, but Samuel responded by saying, okay, what's done is done. Don't worry about that now. You've asked for a king. You've got a king. Let's move on. But here's the thing. Stay faithful to God. Stop doing evil. But if you do persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Now, this warning leads us into chapter 13, which we, Tim just read out, where we see everything start to go wrong for Saul. And this passage will show us just how power really works with God. In the first seven verses of chapter 13, we read about the situation um, that he was facing at this point with the Philistines. They had superior numbers, 
superior technology. They controlled the iron, the development of iron. They had, was Saul and, and, and his son Jonathan only had swords because they got it from the Philistines in the first place. Um, they were in trouble. Um, you, we read about how they were frightened, the Israelites, and they were intimidated. Something has shifted all of a sudden. While they had, had a great victory not long before, now Saul asks them to muster and they're quaking with fear, it says in verse 7. It's like the spirit um, that was with them in the last battle has gone away. Or it doesn't say that, but it's like that. It's like they've lost something. They don't act like people with confidence. They're hiding. And Saul is already moving towards his demise as a king. There's no freedom here. There's no success. We all actually see foolishness in Saul. We see him doing a remarkably strange thing for a military leader. He limits the size of his army. Now, you would only do this if you're really arrogant and overly confident. Verse 2, he says he chose 3,000 men to take on the Philistines. He sent the rest home. It's not the usual tactic when you're taking on a fierce army. Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines, says. So they're provoked. The Philistines have provoked them, and they muster up 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and more, more soldiers than there are sands on the beach. So that's why the Israelites are, are scared. That's why they're frightened, and they're running and hiding. What was King Saul doing? What's this great leader of Israel doing? And then we see a kind of a, a theological verdict for King Saul in verses 8 to 15. The problem for him. See, Saul's army were not professional like army men. They were like a volunteer militia. And so these volunteers were starting to leave. Their morale was low. They're not going to be able to beat the Philistines this time. So in an honest attempt to halt the kind of exodus of his army, he proposes to do a religious act. Saul thinks, okay, I'm God's anointed. What I've got to do is an act of worship to get God to tell me what to do. Samuel's not returned after he was supposed to after a week. So Saul thinks to himself, I'm the king. Surely I can do this. So he brings to God a burnt offering. This is a serious religious act, and it emphasises that you know, this is God's army here. His army was the army of Yahweh. This is an appropriate thing to do. Now, it's unclear whether or not Saul's allowed to even do this. Is he allowed to authorise a sacrifice? I guess being the first king, he doesn't really know what the rules are. In chapter 9, verse 13 of 1 Samuel, it says that Samuel the prophet must bless the sacrifice, nobody else. Yeah, Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's not, he's not a Levite. Is he allowed to do this? Surely it's okay for the king of Israel to offer a sacrifice. He was authorised to be judge and warrior. Is he allowed to be a priest as well? Anyway, Saul waited obediently as the crisis built for seven days, as he had been instructed to do, but the threat to his leadership was growing. So he offers his sacrifice. And as soon as the sacrifice, the burnt offering is finished, Samuel walks in, of course. The timing is shocking. It's almost as if Samuel's been waiting in the back room to surprise him. 
And Samuel was angry. Now Saul doesn't really quite know what's going wrong here. He doesn't, he doesn't realise he's done anything wrong. And he goes to greet Samuel. Oh, lucky you're here. It says that he goes to bless Samuel, or I think it can be translated even salute Samuel. He's glad to welcome him, it says in verse 10. There's no sense of guilt just yet. But Samuel's words are harsh towards him. What have you done? Verse 11, he says. A great wrong has been perpetuated. And Saul went on to explain why he did it. Makes sense. He was being pragmatic. He was being faithful to God. This is, this is what I'm supposed to do, isn't it? The king of Israel. He acted because he did not want to begin battle without a proper religious gesture. He'd waited the whole week to do this. Seems like good and reasonable arguments. Saul wasn't jumping to do this. He said he felt compelled to do it in verse 12. He wasn't preempting or undermining Samuel, the prophet. He was just doing what he had to do. But he says, you have done a foolish thing. Verse 13. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. Now, he doesn't actually mention what commandment he's not kept. He's just broken some commandment. Maybe he's broken the commandment of not respecting Samuel properly. Who knows? The only thing he has done wrong is stepped maybe on the prophet's toes. Saul isn't prepared for this response. Listen to verse 13b. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom for Israel for all time. Now you tell me. If I, if I had not done that sacrifice, my kingdom would have been established for all time. Why didn't you tell me this before? Would have been a fair enough thing to say. What's Samuel doing? He's playing a strange game here. What's God doing? Could the whole of the Old Testament have been centred around Saul and not David? Is it just because of this one act that everything changes? Verse 14, Samuel says, But now your kingdom's not going to endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. So suddenly, in verse 14, Samuel, God, well God, through Samuel, takes away the anointing from Saul and says there's someone else. He sets things in place for David. Now, he doesn't mention David's name, but we know because we know the story that he's talking about David, who's intended all along. This is a problematic thing for Saul. Why, Why is this such a harsh response? Where's this idea for a new king come from? Well, we see that like Yahweh, Samuel, he brings low, he also exalts. We read that out from the Song of Hannah. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Did Saul ever have a chance at success? Or was he fated to be a victim of tragedy where he didn't have a chance? And here we see God's control over history. In the one hand, God is sovereign and he has the plan and he knows about King David and what King David's going to do. On the other hand, King Saul made his own decisions and made his own mistakes. He could have honoured Samuel and the traditions of holy war. But this is a sad story because he chose and he's also part of 
salvation history. His death-warranting failure is, is a bit like the original sin of Adam, which is both choice and destiny. Next week, we'll see that King David is, is a kind of a type of Jesus, but Saul's more like the type of Adam, whose, whose failure in the garden was both choice and destiny. So the Saul story ends, it goes on for, I mean, there's another 30-odd years or so of his life as the non-anointed king, and he just it's a great... Shakespearean type tragedy as, as King David or as David rises up um, in, in kind of parallel stories uh, it's failure, there's grief God takes the anointing away from Saul, transfers it to David and Saul eventually falls on his sword and Israel moves on to the next king the old guard rejects Saul for all his failures moves to the next king and David goes on to be a king whose sins were just as great as Saul. This is a strange thing. His repentance was no greater than Saul, and yet he becomes a great anointed King David, whereas Saul was condemned as a failure. And this is where we learn of the other great force. We learn about the Philistines causing this change in Israel. Now we learn about another great force, which is Yahweh himself. God chose David, showed him grace, a grace that he didn't show Saul. David was the man God chose to set his heart on, which is what Samuel says in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. And so here is the big point of all this story so far about the first king, King Saul. It is that without God's grace, even a great king like Saul will be a failure. Without God's grace, even a great man like Saul will fail. Another Saul, who became Paul, the Apostle Paul, when talking about his conversion, said that he too was a foolish, arrogant man. But when Jesus Christ miraculously appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he said, and this is from 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. We don't know why God showed grace to David, but not to Saul, but this is God's perfect plan. But we do know that for us, God's gracious free gift of forgiveness and healing is freely on offer to us, and we just need to accept it. Now we see that David will go on to be God's anointed king, but it will be Jesus who is the true king Messiah, the true anointed Messiah, the son of David, whose kingdom will be established forever. Jesus Christ the Messiah would be the true personification of this grace that Saul needed. Jesus Christ would be the king of grace. In Jesus there'll be no confusion over is, uh, can I be the prophet, can I be the priest, can I be the king? Jesus is both prophet, priest and king as one man. He will not risk breaking God's law because he is the fulfilment of God's law. Only King Je Jesus can save us. Only King Jesus will lead us to true victory. But we have a problem. 
And that is that, like the Israelites in the days of Samuel, we do the same thing. We look to the wrong place for our kings, for our saviour king. Israel had Yahweh as king, and the new Israel, we have Jesus as our king, a king who has shown perfect grace. But we look to other kings, kings after our own heart. We feel the pressures of life mounting, and our modern-day equivalent of the Philistines might be not be a military threat, but it might be another kind of existential threat. We become worried about being a failure. We become worried about loneliness. We become worried that something might go wrong in our life. So we look to other saviour kings other than Jesus. And we undertake a kind of a salvation project, a self-salvation project. So we throw ourselves into work. But without God's grace, even the greatest career achievements at work will fail. They will fail to save us. We bury our heads in more study. But it doesn't matter how accomplished we become in our field of research, without God's grace, our study will fail to save us. We immerse ourselves in a passionate relationship and we think that that is what's going to be the thing that makes us. But it doesn't matter how intense the love might be, your sense of self-worth might be improved in this newfound relationship, but without God's grace, even the most passionate romantic relationship will fail to save us. Even for some of us, we commit ourselves to religious devotion, but it doesn't matter how hard you work at church, it doesn't matter how many rosters you are on, without God's grace, even religious activities will fail to save us. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, the true Saviour King, God's promised true anointed one, the true fulfilment of God's promise made to Abraham, he says, stop looking to the wrong king. If you are, you will feel exhausted. You will feel tired. You will feel weary and burdened. You will feel burnt out. This will lead you to feel negative and bitter about things when they don't go your way. You'll feel discouraged and depressed and frustrated. You might even feel jealous of other people. We must not live apart from God's grace. We need to work out who our false kings are and sell, you know, confess them, hand them over to Jesus. And let him give you this yoke, his yoke, which is easy, and his burden, which is light. We need to start living in response to King Jesus and the grace he has shown us. Let our life not be an attempt to learn, earn God's love, but make our life a response to God's love. So as we begin our series on kings, let me point you to the true king, King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray for all of us here uh, this morning, whatever false kings we may be worshipping, and pray that we hand them over to you and we will receive your grace. We thank you that you offer your grace to us perfectly because you are the king of grace, the king of glory. Amen.